everyone. Thanks so much for joining. Um, so yes, I work for the Baldwin Gallery in London. Um, we're a commercial space that's represented Meryl for the last three or four years. So I've had the pleasure of working quite closely with her for some time. Um, so Meryl is a Canadian artist. Um, she defines her practice as sculptural photography. So often incorporating um, props, um, sculptural garments and performance into her work. Um, she, is, she has dual heritage, so on her mother's side um, she has British, Dutch and Scottish ancestry and then on her father's side um, she's of uh, Plains Cree First Nation um, in Canada. So she uses her um, self-portraiture to sort of navigate these um, intervening identities um, and sort of um, come to terms with the sense of being in between her both Euro-Canadian and also her indigenous culture. Um, so I think this is a great um, image to start with on the edge of this immensity. So um, for this um, series, As Immense as the Sky, um, Merrill um, started um, researching sites of ancestral significance across Canada, from Ontario to Newfoundland um, to Saskatchewan and Alberta. And she started um, tracing um, the sort of roots of migration that her family have taken um, on both sides of her heritage, um, finding um, sort of environmental, social and cultural contact zones. Um, so this image was taken at Manitoulin Island um, in Ontario. So um, a few hundred years ago on her mother's side, um, her ancestors um, came over from Holland in a boat, uh, landed on the shores of New York where they settled for some time. Then around the time of the American Revolution, they uh, fled across the border to Canada where they settled in Ontario um, for several hundred years. Um, so this image was taken very near where her great-grandmother was born. Um, and before she started this project, she's never, she'd never explored this part of Canada before um, and ended up sort of tracing the, the route that her, her family had taken. So as you can see, she has this imagery of the ship. Um, and she was thinking a lot about um, these sort of great migrations that have happened through history, um, families... Um, coming in and out of Canada and also exploring away from Canada by water. Um, as you'll see throughout her work, she has this thing for birds. It's always this recurring imagery of birds and these sort of animal guardians that act often as her companions in her imagery. Um, she often uh, sort of paints her face, um, thinking for her, these aren't so much self-portraits, but images of this sort of theatrical um, version of herself that is kind of her, but also not her. Um, yeah. Um, please interject at any point if you have specific questions um, or anything like that. I'm more than happy to answer. Um, on the edge of this immensity. And also, um, for this series, um, Meryl has um, written these um, little poems to go with each work, um, which are also translated into Plains Cree as well. So as she's learning more and more about her indigenous culture, she's also trying to learn the, these languages, which, um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, and then this work is from um, a small series called um, Edge of a Moment, 
which um, entails this piece here and then the large piece here. Um, so these images were taken um, in Saskatchewan um, at a sort of heritage site called Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump. Um, so this was the sort of first time Merrill visited a place of um, ancestral significance. So um, this is an area of the prairies where um, buffalo were hunted sustainably for over 6,000 years. Um, and then <clears throat> at the... So um, hunters were, would... They had this like um, deep knowledge of the topography of the landscape and also the behavioural patterns of bison, and they would literally herd um, the bison off the off the edge of this precipice where they would fall below, and um, then they could gather the carcasses and butch them. Um, so this was a sustainable practice, and then obviously at the point of settlement in the prairies, um, uh, colonisers came in and. Um, Eventually, bison were hunted to the point of extinction in this area. <clears throat> so Merrill's um, using this series to think about um, the erasure of um, key species um, in her ancestral lands. So the bison, but also you can see from her head, head, um, headwear, um, she has these sort of feathers. And this is a reference to the prairie chicken, um, which um, was um, also uh, is now extinct in the prairies, um, but has a deep cultural significance for Plains Cree culture. Um, male um, powwow dancers in their regalia would have these sort of feather bustles in their costumes. Um, likewise, the top hat she's wearing um, is a reference to beavers, um, which were also hunted to extinction. Um, and their fur was... Um, was used to make these sort of fashionable top hats. So always with her costume, she's bringing in um, different streams of reference, both from her indigenous and um, European heritage. Um, sort of inhabiting um, these sort of um, different um, uh, cultures um, to, to make some comment on um, how humans can maybe act in a more um, sustainable way um, with the with the environment. Um, another great image, one of my favourites, is um, this piece behind. Um, so this was taken also in Saskatchewan um, on her father's um, home, the the reservation uh, that he grew up called the Red Pheasant First Nation. So um, in this image, um, Merrill was thinking um, initially about um, the sky and how um, across cultures um, throughout history, um, humans look up at the sky um, to try and establish some sense of belonging in the world and sort of find their place. Um, she also did some research into um, animal species that use um, starlight to navigate. And obviously with um, increasing urbanization, um, building megacities and cities, um, we're due to light pollution, we're losing the ability to um, see the stars. Um, so for her, she's referencing this in her um, garments. She has these sort of celestial um, patterns, which I believe um, are a reference to um, designs that were painted on the height of teepees um, to sort of tell the story of how humans came to Earth. Um, so the image is taken at twilight, which is this sort of liminal... Um, moment in between night and day. 
um, and she's wearing this fox um, mask, um, which is um, firstly a reference to the swift fox, um, which inhabits this area of Canada, but is um, decreasing in numbers due to um, industrial farming practices. And it's also a reference to Wisakachak, um, who in Plains Cree mythology is this um, cultural um, trickster figure. And the trickster is um, a figure that uh, appears in many different cultural narratives across the world. And he is this sort of shape-shifting creature that inhabits both human and animal forms and often appears in these sort of moralizing stories. Um, so for Meryl, again, always um, playing with these um, sort of shape-shifting forms, she inhabits um, intervening identities, both animal, human, woman, child, colonizer, and um, human. And she's walking along this sort of washed-out um, path, as I said, um, on her father's reservation, um, which um, throughout the history of Canada and today is still these very politically charged spaces. And for her, there's some kind of symbolism here in um, the wateriness of this road ahead, as if to comment on um, the work that still needs to be done in terms of um, reconciliation um, in Canada and um, how we can heal um, some of the societal problems that still exist on reservations today. So, yeah. Of course. Um, I was wondering about the process of making these. Does she go backwards and forwards to a place, or does she go once and then go away and create all the things and then take them back into? So I, I believe, um, so for a lot of these series, um, particularly the ones in Saskatchewan, she did a lot of prior research into um, these ancient um, pitching trails that um, crossed Canada. Um, and also for some of the images, she um, spoke a lot to her, um, relatives and elders on both sides of her family, trying to figure out these family histories and migratory routes. So I think she, for, these, for this series, she had quite a clear sense of um, where she wanted to go um, and at these sites of significance. And then I believe um, she, she travels initially and sort of gets a sense of the landscape and then that helps her sort of conceptualize um, the, the garments that she makes and she comes up with these clear concepts. Um, but a lot of the research she does um, is with um, family members and members of the community that are, are, are based around these areas, and that's quite a big part of um, her research process. Does she make her own garments? Yes. And, and how does she art direct the photography? She generally works alone. Um, oh. Yeah, so um, she uses a timer and things like that. Oh, really? I think for her, sometimes she has an assistant, but I think for her, especially with some of the, these long shoots that she does on the ice, she feels a bit guilty to ask someone to come with her and stand in the snow for hours. Okay, so to, I mean, they're very skilled as photographs. Does she have a background in photography? Um, I believe she was mostly interested in costume design um, when she was studying, um, and then sort of photography came along, alongside, yeah. Um, I'll take you on. How are we doing for time? Okay, great.
this diptych here um, lead me to places I could never find on my own. Um, so as I mentioned, um, Merrill did this research into these ancient pitching trails. Um, so these were routes used by local people, um, that, these well-traveled routes to move from summer to winter hunting grounds, and there were always um, sort of gathering points and, and ceremonial areas along these routes. Um, so um, this image was taken at the um, Badlands National Park in Saskatchewan. Um, so this was an area um, that was not so much impacted by um, glacial uh, <laughs> erosion um, millions of years ago. So it still has these very sort of rocky outcrops and gullies. Um, and it's a protected area in Canada. Um, where the, the Canadian government are trying to reinstigate um, certain species. So in the west of the park, they now have bison um, uh, thriving there, and they're trying to reinstigate certain types of grasses and prairie dogs. Um, and then um, on the eastern side of the park, um, where these images are taken, it's a slightly more rugged landscape. So as I mentioned before, she did some research into um, animal species that use the stars to navigate. Um, and this bird is um, a bird called the indigo bunting bird, um, which um, yeah, uses the starlight to find its way. Um, it has this very um, special um, plumage. And when the light hits it, it turns this very vibrant, iridescent sort of blue color. So Merrill's... Um, Again, following the trail um, that perhaps her ancestors once walked on, gathering stars, um, trying to find um, sort of wisdom in the landscape with these bird, birds as her companion and guide. Um, likewise, this image, cartography of the unseen. Um, so this um, seems to be quite a surreal landscape for Canada, but it's um, taken at the second largest active um, sand dune, also in Saskatchewan. And this is where she found that a, a, another pitching trail would have um, traversed. Um, so although it seems like quite an arid, harsh landscape, in reality there's lots of small creatures that actually thrive in this environment. Um, and she, there's something quite symbolic for her about the sand, especially when you think about the um, winds that um, blow across the prairies, it becomes this very sort of transient landscape that's always shifting, taking different forms. And for her, she, that she was thinking about um, how with the colonial encounter, certain cultures were maybe written over or erased um, through um, various colonial oppressions. Um, the headpiece she's wearing um, is representative of the whooping crane, um, which actually um, is an endangered species that mostly lives in swampy uh, wetland areas. Um, and she, so she's sort of displaced this animal into this more sort of um, arid environment. Um, and it's kind of perched on her head almost like a beacon and for her, this inspiration came from thinking about um, decoy ducks, which um, are used. There are these carved um, figures of ducks originally made from wood and now used um, in, in plastic, um, used by hunters to attract um, the attention of other animals um, so that they could, birds or other animals could be shot and hunted. 
Um, so for her, she's wearing this sort of decoy beacon as if to attract the attention of other animals um, and lead them um, with her on her journey through this um, very surreal environment. Um, in the background, we have this sort of storm brewing, which I think was an unplanned um, part of the image, but adds this very interesting mood to the photograph. Um, this is another uh, one of my favorite pieces um, from a still and quiet place. Um, so this was also taken um, on her father's reservation um, in central Saskatchewan, the Red Pheasant First Nation. Um, so this was an area very close to the homestead um, where her dad grew up. Um, so he, uh, I believe it used to be a highly forested area, but then um, the land was sold to a farmer and all the trees were cut down. But her father still tells her all these stories of um, riding horses here as a, as a kid and um, riding toboggans and things in the snow. So for Meryl, there's this very intimate personal connection to this landscape, but she, in this image, um, brings, uses it to speak about sort of broader issues um, in Canadian history. So um, as I mentioned, um, reservations have this very politically charged history in Canada. Um, they were areas where um, First Nations people were sort of forced to live um, with a lot of um, rights and lands taken away um, in this sort of aggressive policy from the Canadian nation state of assimilation. So um, we can see Merrill's um, walking through the land. She's carrying these um, vintage school bells. Um, so this is a reference to the history of residential schools in Canada, um, which was, um, an, as I said, an aggressive policy of assimilation where children uh, were taken from their families and um, forced, uh, they, had their, they weren't allowed to speak native languages, they had their um, traditional names taken away from them, they were often given numbers, um, and they were sort of forced to um, learn uh, a sort of Euro-Catholic um, way of worldview. Um, so the trauma of, of residential schools is still felt by indigenous communities today. So she's referencing this, and she also has these lockets around her neck with um, images of um, her family members that she's collected, um, perhaps ancestors that have lived on, on this uh, land stretch before. And she's wearing um, this dog soldier headdress, which is um, a reference to um, a traditional um, headdress still worn in powwow regalia today um, in this part of central Saskatchewan and also in the northern United States. Um, it's made with um, dyed uh, goose, um, goose feathers. Um, I think traditionally it w there would have been uh, made from sacred eagle feathers. And then, like I mentioned before, she has um, Scottish ancestry, so she researched um, on her mother's side, so she researched the exact tartan um, of her family's clan, historically the Campbell clan. Um, once again, um, combining all of these different streams of reference into her garment, um, using her photography as this very personally transformative process um, to commemorate her ancestors' Um, and also critique wider issues about the conflicted histories of Canada. Questions? Did she use any, um, after uh, she enhanced them or changes in her photographs, 
Because the red ribbon on the photo around the corner looks so almost unreal, or is it all? I don't know. I don't know much about the post-production. Sorry, I can find out for you. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, where was I going to go next? Um, so maybe over here. So in this series, Umadivisian um, Tide, so this is, image was taken on the shores of Newfoundland um, at the Greenpoint Geological Site um, at the Gross Morin uh, National Park. Um, so Merrill was really fascinated by the geology of this area because um, millions of years ago, um, the um, Newfoundland was actually um, connected to Northern Ireland and it shared a fault line uh, with Scotland. Um, so she, she was really fascinated about this idea that these landforms were once connected um, and she felt this sense um, of connection to her previous ancestors that originated or, um, in Scotland. Um, so again, she's um, <clears throat> uh, using these bottles um, almost to um, maybe uh, write messages of hope or connection uh, with the future sending them out to sea and, um, yeah, <laughs> um, again, thinking about how um, these, part the connection to sort of past lives and things, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, um, and then uh, there's two, uh, this diptych here and here. So, um, as I mentioned before, um, a lot there's a very um, throughout the work. Um, she's really interested in these sort of enviro environmental concerns, specifically um, the erasure of sort of native species in Canada. So as you can see, she's wearing the same uh, garment in in both pieces. Um, she was thinking about um, re uh, insects and how just hearing anecdotes of people living in cities and um, them seeing fewer and fewer insects um, on the windscreens of cars and things, and this sort of loss of abundance um, in, in terms of the natural world that we're all sort of experiencing. And she started thinking about insects as these sort of fragile um, creatures um, that actually have quite a profound role in our ecosystems. Um, and um, the, the garment she's wearing um, is modeled on an Inuit uh, gut skin um, cloak, uh, sort of used for fishing and hunting. Um, again, sort of her, her costume and the way she inhabits um, the natural world um, ties into these sort of um, broader issues of um, environmental change. Um, she's sort of using her body to um, maintain a, uh, or promote a sustainable ecological harmony with, the, um, with our surrounding environment. Um, quite a key issue in a lot of these works is um, uh, sh she's thinking about time existing in a cyclical way. I think in a lot of Eurocentric narratives, we imagine time moving forward in a linear trajectory. Um, but in a lot of indigenous wisdom, um, there's a way of imagining time as uh, recurrent and cyclical. And she is thinking about the life cycle of an insect 
um, which um, repeats um, very rapidly every year in their breeding cycles um, with a fast succession. Um, and trying to um, imagine a, a new worldview um, outside of um, Western narratives of time. I think oh, we must be out of time, right? <laughs> okay. Any any questions or is there anything? Yes. Can you talk to um, Meryl much about her titles because some of them are pretty quite epic, like the imagery, quite sublime. Uh, edge of a moment, and, um, and as immense as the sky. I'm just wondering if you talked to her about that in relation to the imagery. You know, a, a lost figure in a landscape is quite a romantic, sublime trope. Uh, yeah. And it's the one quote I've worked at Icon, is the one question I forgot to ask. Her. <laughs> <laughs> um, she does think quite a lot about her titles. I think for her, she, um, as she's um, learned, she she has this very profound connection to the landscape and I think she also feels um, very small with the, the breadth of knowledge that she's trying to learn, um, not only in terms of her indigenous culture but um, about the natural world. Um, so I think that's really reflected in her choice of language in that way. Um, but the, there are some really poetic things, like for instance this image here um, from a still unquiet place. It has this sense of... Um, apprehension that this sort of serene landscape, there is obviously this very tempestuous and controversial history tied into it that needs to be addressed. Um, and again, with her, her poetry as well, it's really worth um, a read as, as you walk around, because there's some really beautiful turns of phrases in what she's trying to express. Yeah. I just want to say thank you to Verity, because that was super interesting. As Kerry or Lindsay said earlier, I work here as the assistant curator, so I've worked pretty closely with Meryl on that show and I didn't know, didn't know half of those facts. That was super interesting. Um, so thanks very much. And yeah, similarly with this show, um, I worked pretty closely with John and his team over in Maine in the States to bring, bring the work here. Um, so I know, I know a bit about it. Um, John Walker is a Birmingham-born artist, as some of you may or may not know. He was born here in 1939. Uh, his parents actually met, this is a really interesting fact, at the University of Birmingham in the Great Hall when it was used uh, actually as a, pla a place to recover, um, pay, uh, what am I trying to say here, soldiers from World War I who were, who were injured during the war. And John's mother nursed back to health his father, and they met in that period and John was subsequently born from, from that relationship. Um, following, following on from that, John studied at the Moseley School of Art, which is actually a technical arts college in Moseley, which some of you may or may not know. Um, so he would have really had his, the kind of basis or the fore, foreground for a lot of his kind of draftsman skills would have, would have begun there. And following that, he went on to study at the Birmingham University, or Birmingham, I think it was called Birmingham University at the time, but now it's Birmingham School of Art and it's around the corner. So it has the same architect as Icon, so you might, if you ever walk past it, you'll probably, you'll probably know it. And he also studied at the British School in Rome and also in Paris as well. Um, interestingly, John's mum was a cleaner, and when he was a young boy and she was supposedly taking care of him, she'd often kick him out and send him up to the uh, Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, which were, I think you could say were where his formative years were, maybe. Um, 
he, or something that's always asked of him, is why he paints landscapes, considering he's from a city, which is, you know. But it's because of the John Constable works at the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, which he was absolutely fascinated by. And this fascination with, you know, some of the greats continued really through spending time in museums and art galleries. I mean, he would visit, he would take his motorbike, and I mean, one very um, you know, prominent story of John's is that he travelled to Amsterdam to see the Van Goghs, or the Van Goghs, or the Van Goghs, as ever you want to call it. And uh, those were really inspirational moments for him, along with seeing the Rembrandts. And he tells a really great story of um, Rembrandt's... Uh, what's the work called? It's left my brain. It will come to me. It's a great Rembrandt painting, essentially. And he saw it, and for him it was the best painting he said he ever saw. Um, that same day he left, and this is at the Rijks Academy, so he left the Rijks Academy, crossed over the road and went to the, modern, the Museum of Modern Art there, which I've now forgotten the name of. Is it the Stedelijk? Well, I don't know if it was at the time, though. Might not have been. Anyway. Um, and he saw a Malevich painting, who some of you might know is a Russian, one of the very early abstract painters. And he had a very similar moment where he felt kind of compelled by what he was seeing. And it was at that moment that he started to paint abstract art, or from, from that moment onwards. Uh, and this is at the age of about 18 to 20, and that's when he started to, yeah, really get into his, his flow with, with abstract work. So if we go through to the next gallery. So um, there is a very famous art dealer, abstract art dealer, called Betty Parsons. And when John had a studio in a place called Blackwell, which is west of Birmingham, Betty Parsons actually visited him. John, I was talking to my colleague earlier about this, and John tells this story in a way uh, that, well, the narrative of that story is that Betty Parsons was for some reason or other in Blackwell, which seems very strange to me, considering she's a very famous New York art dealer. But anyway, apparently she kind of arrived at his studio and was fascinated by the mounds of work he had there and said to him, do you want to have a show in New York? And five years after that, after he'd picked up some prominence in the States, but also in the UK, he, uh, he showed in Icon's new premises, which was uh, above New Street, Get new Street Station, sorry, which is not too far from here. And um, John showed a series of uh, chalkboards, which were made in situ, um, well, blackboards, sorry, with, made with chalk, chalk drawings. These subsequently went on to be shown at the Venice Biennale of that year. And then John's kind of stature as a painter increased and, you know, he's in collections all over the world. Tate and MoMA are kind of the most noticeable, uh, notable. Um, his, I mean, the, the, you know, he spent time in New York and then he also went on to spend time in Australia. And some of you may have noticed this. There's a real Aboriginal theme, you know, running through the work, which is very interesting in relation to Merrill's work and the idea of, you know, native language, which is, you know, absolutely apparent in, and is the kind of topic of, uh, of Merrill's work. Um, John, John was absolutely fascinated by the kind of ephemerality of, of the Aborigine or Aboriginal people and how they would essentially throw their work away when the spirits had left. So in this period they were making, John often wasn't allowed to see the work, but it would be afterwards that he would. And John at this time was a teacher and, and he also invited uh, these Aboriginal painters or artists and peoples to, to actually to teach on his courses and apparently his students were also fascinated 
by this. Um, another interesting... Yeah, it's. I, well, I suppose it's. It's the actual. It's the the symbolism in the work. I suppose. I guess it's difficult for John to bring the kind of, the idea of the, um, you know, faith and belief and all those things into it because he's not a religious man. So some of it is to do with simply the gestures and the strokes in the paintings and things like that, which he picked up through these people. Some of the eucalyptus, not in these ones as such, but some of the eucalyptus pods on those are what he picked up in, from um, Aboriginal people, which is. Fascinating, I think. Another aspect uh, which is really interesting in John's work is how he became interested in poetry. And this brings me back to the story about his, his father in World War I. I don't think he had a great relationship with his father. And towards the end of his father's life, he, he started to tell John more stories about his own life and the things he went through in World War I. And his interest in, and John had, well, started to grow an interest in World War I poets. And he, I mean, he used to, if some of you know John's work, he would often write into the painting, so you'd actually see text and language in there, which isn't in there so much anymore. You can still kind of see gestural strokes and things, which maybe relate to a kind of, maybe not the, yeah, the British language that we know, know so well. But, um, yeah, so that was a way of him kind of coming closer to his, to his dad and trying to build or rebuild this relationship, which he didn't really have as a boy. Um, and we can now talk about this show icon. So, for, yeah, John hadn't really shown for many, many years here um, in the UK. He'd shown with uh, commercial galleries, but not, not, not kind of huge shows like this one here. Um, or, you, you know, in other, in other galleries similar, similar to Icon, or even at Tate. Um, at the opening of John's show, we had Christopher Lebrun, who's the president of the RA, kind of open the show. And he uh, kind of led this narrative that had John not have left the UK, maybe, you know, UK painters would have had more prominence over the sculptors here. Um, so he's really thought of by British painters as, yeah, the kind of, you know, best of the best kind of thing. Um, so this show here was conceived or, yeah, through a conversation between Simon Chapman, who was... Icon's director in 1972 when the chalk, uh, chalk drawings were shown. Um, and our director, Jonathan Watkins. Simon thought it was you know, really important that we bring John back, has a bit of a homecoming. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's happened. So all of the works, we can watch through to this guy if you want. All of the works are made in Maine. Uh, over a period of the last five years. So I think the oldest work is through there, and it was made in 2015. Um, and a lot of them, at the time actually John moved to Maine, he found it very difficult to paint because it was too beautiful where he moved to. So some of you may know that John has this interest in like turning mud into air, something he's kind of quoted... I think that might have been a Malevich quote as well. Or it might have been Matisse, actually. Um, and, yeah, it's something he believes that he's trying to do. And another Malevich quote that, he, that he's um, really fascinated by is, is how Malevich, he thought the ambition of painting was to turn a square into something that imbued feeling. And John thinks that's, that's the height of what painting can be. So in John's work, it's really about 
channeling the energy of the kind of territory you're in and spilling that onto the canvas in some regard. So for years, John worked exclusively outside and would paint outside and would be totally directed by the sunlight, what was in front of him, if he was you know, out in a kind of a burdened landscape. Um, but in Maine, he found it more difficult to come to terms with the landscape there because of its beauty. And a lot of, historically, a lot of his paintings, you know, some people describe them as being quite ugly. Um, so he would, he would wait until the tide was out and when he could see the mud or the, you know, the clams and the mess they'd made. And he'd also try and incorporate this into the paintings he made. So what you're seeing in the paintings here at Icon are essentially when the changes in light are. And I just wanted to read a quote from this, which is fascinating about these works, which is where John says, I'm trying to get what's there. I'm not fudging it. It may not be there when you're there, but it's there when I'm there. I do paint in this place that we call Shitty Cove, which is where all the rubbish comes in. I can't paint the scenic part, I'm anti-scenic. It took me about 10 years before I could paint the place, even though I was living here. I found a place where it smells and all the garbage comes in and that allowed me to paint because it was scenic. So for John, the scenic is about supposedly the anti-scenic and the non-beauty of Maine, which is um, somewhat ironic. But yeah, I just wanted to finish on this piece because this, this work goes all the way back. It's called Fishing with Tom and Les. And Tom and Les were John's two elder brothers who introduced him to fishing and a form you know, of meditation, as he refers to it. Fishing's one of his other loves. Um, and the, yeah, so the, I mean, they're both, they've both left, left us now. So John doesn't get to see them too much, but they're also from Birmingham. So he wanted to incorporate this, this painting here in the show. So if anyone has any questions, please do ask. He doesn't know. He has a, he, I think he used it for a long time, when he used to mix them with mud. But um, he doesn't anymore. He has, a, he has someone who makes them for him. Yeah. No, he works out of huge, big cans. So the type of cans you'd paint your walls with at home, that's, how he, that's what he puts on the canvas, yeah. Anyone else? I really struggle with how to read these paintings. Mm. It's really interesting the contrast downstairs with here. Downstairs, yeah. It's beautiful. And it's, yeah. It's a great question. I actually did a, I did a workshop with our youth program last night, and this was something I was trying to get out of them. And something I was really intrigued by was their almost non-reaction to these paintings, in a way. Um, and you know, <laughs> that's no offence to John, but I think to some extent he doesn't want. He doesn't want you to look for meaning in the works. He often says that if you're looking for meaning, you're looking for the wrong thing. For him, it's about interrogating the medium of painting, really. So, yeah. Is he an artist's artist? Not for me to say, I don't think. Any other comments? I'll leave it there then, I think. Thank <laughs> you.